You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 71. Hello there, Metamorphs. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City story universe. You can find out more about the setting at metamorecity.com, and you can learn about my other work at chrislester.org. This is the show where I share my fiction with you, fresh off the writing desk. So, let's get right to it. Today I'm bringing you the second half of Chapter 21 in my Metamore City novel, Things Unseen. If you're new to the show, don't start here. Go back to Episode 24 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Metamore City Police Detective Catherine Katain has just helped rescue one of her unlucky charges, Lady Sephra Hinlasos. Sephi had been taken by agents of the Vampire Crime Syndicate because they hoped to use her to learn about the Telvari Rift. Sephi and her friends recently visited the Rift, and a surge of magical energy transformed their bodies and gave them psionic powers. Sephi's power was extrasensory perception, including the ability to see the future. In addition, Sephi is currently hosting five non-corporeal beings inside her body. Three of these beings are natives of the Telvari Rift, magical symbionts that feed on the Rift's life-giving energies. The other two are her former companions, Hal Raines and Bernard Travers, whose bodies were consumed by their own unwitting passengers. Sephi was visited by the vampire prince himself, Malcolm Ardvalos. While he was there, she spoke a prophecy against him, warning that his enemies were already plotting to destroy him. Malcolm was particularly concerned about the shadowy figure known as the White Widow, who remains a mystery to him despite the fact that she has been sabotaging his empire from all directions. In fear and frustration, Malcolm turned Sephi over for questioning by his top enforcer, a sadistic death magic user named Fisher. Fisher tormented Sephi using a terrible artifact, a black orb of polished stone that houses something dark, alien, and hungry. The thing inside the orb fed on Sephi's life force, exhausting her reserves. Soon thereafter, Sephi was rescued by Janus Starson and the Lightbringers, with help from Kate and her partner David. After Fisher's torture session, though, Sephi doesn't have enough strength left to reach Lightbringer headquarters. Her only hope now is to make it to Caius Hart, the mana nexus hidden deep inside the Citadel. There, the life-aspected mana that flows out of the nexus will keep Sephi and her passengers alive. Sephi informs Kate and Janus that Kaya has already opened a path to the Nexus, and that Misty, Morgan, and Julia are already there. Janus knows a secret way into the Citadel, an underground passage used by the Lightbringers for transporting VIPs. What none of them know, however, is that Malcolm Ardvalos has been listening to their entire conversation. Things Unseen A Novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester
Chapter 21. Continued. Malcolm looked up from the radio and cast a significant glance at William Westerson. The spymaster sat with his fingers steepled in front of his lips, his eyes deep in calculation. Fisher has failed us, Malcolm said. The hidden microphones in the office had given them a clear transmission of the interrogation and its abrupt conclusion. How did the Lightbringers locate our facility? Scrying, my lord, Westerson said mildly. You knew that opening the tank would compromise the shielding. Yes, but to find her that quickly, across half the city? That's more luck than I believe in, William. There must have been a link, something they could use to track her. Westerson pulled up a list on his tablet, items that Fisher and his men had found in the police cruiser when they obtained the Lassos girl. Hmm. The flower, perhaps? He called up an image that Malcolm recognized as a Nocturna's lily, the latest bit of exotica marketed to Metamore's elite by House Kapler. They're known to have arcane properties. He paged back through a few other reports. And Osprey says the detectives brought one to the labs for some kind of ritual. Malcolm nodded slowly. It fits. Send a memo to purge all of these lilies from our holdings. No, wait. Send them to our research labs in Algra. If there is a way to use these flowers for espionage, I want to know how it works. Right away, Westerson agreed. He began tapping out the memo. What about the girl? Malcolm drummed his fingers on the table, thinking. If what Lady Sephira said was true, three of the young nobles who had been exposed to the rift were now converging on the Citadel. And on the Nexus, no less. Even more incredibly, the Majestrix had deigned to grant them access. What was Kaya's stake in this? And why would she make herself so vulnerable by exposing her heart? Then Malcolm thought of the visions Lady Sephira had shown him. Chaos and ruin, the city in flames. Did the Majestrix know what the girl had seen? If so, she would want to prevent it as much as Malcolm himself. She would want this Cirrus to come to her, to share her foresight with Kaya and the Avatars. And what else will she show the Majestrix? Malcolm thought darkly. How much did she see of my plans for this city? That thought clinched the matter. He turned back to Westerson. What's the status of Greyout? Westerson stopped typing. He looked up at Malcolm and carefully set down the tablet. Team 7 has the prototypes. They're still in field testing. Do they work? How the... Westerson paused, pressed his lips together in a thin line then spoke more quietly again. We do not, at this time, have enough data to say whether or not they are working. Milord. But no one from Team 7 has been detained by Citadel Police while the system was active, Malcolm pointed out. He knew this had to be true. He would have been informed if Greyout had failed. Yes, Milord, but the Majestrix doesn't share everything she knows with her police. For all we know, Greyout is completely useless. Kaya knows exactly where our people are, and now she's just sitting back and giving us enough rope to hang ourselves. Or it works exactly as intended, Malcolm countered. 
We won't know for certain until our agents do something the Majestrix can't afford to ignore. Westerson leaned forward. Not quickly, not in anger, but it was more reaction than Malcolm usually got from the man. And are you certain, my lord, that this is the mission you want to risk them for? Team Seven is one of my best field teams. It would be deeply unfortunate if their lives were wasted. Malcolm smiled, and not unkindly. Your people mean a great deal to you. I respect that, William. It's one of the reasons you're good at your job. Westerson's posture relaxed a little. Thank you, my lord. Malcolm waved it away. You didn't see what I saw in that vision. Lady Sephra is the most powerful seeress I've ever heard of. We can't let the Majestrix have her, or we risk losing everything. How long would Kaya tolerate our presence if she knew how much of the city was already ours? Another unpleasant thought fell into place. What if she already suspects it, and is working to remove us in secret? Westerson's eyebrows went up. You think Kaya is the White Widow? Perhaps. It would explain why her identity is hidden from the Lassos girl, and how she has the resources to challenge us. What if our Cirrus goes to the Majestrix, and she uses her foresight to reveal our movements, our plans, our defenses? How long will your security measures hold out against a precognizant foe? The spymaster looked grim. If her foresight is that powerful, my lord, I recommend termination. Even if we could recapture her, she's too great a security risk. Malcolm sighed. He hated being wasteful, especially with irreplaceable resources. Perhaps you're right. Very well. Tell Team Seven to activate Greyout and prevent Lady Sephira from reaching the Nexus. Recovering the body should be considered a secondary objective. Maybe we can at least learn something about how the rift changed her. Very good, my lord. Any orders about the other targets? The detectives? Janus? Halloway? Matthias? Drowling? Malcolm had almost forgotten about Drowling. I want Dr. Drowling back in the fold. By invitation, if possible. By capture, if necessary. Janus should be delayed and separated from the others. No offense, William, but I wouldn't give even Team Seven much chance of killing him. None taken, Westerson said. The others aren't important. If they get in the way, remove them. Just make sure their deaths can't be traced back to us. An inspiration struck him. You leaked their whereabouts to Ezekiel Kapler the other day, didn't you? Could you do so again without him becoming suspicious? Westerson smiled wryly. Being suspicious is as natural to that boy as breathing. But I believe I can point his paranoia in a useful direction. He's currently under sedation in his father's own facility. Good. Send someone to wake him up and point him toward the Citadel. He'll make a fine candidate for a murder-suicide. And ready the hounds, just in case we need them to finish the job. I'm sure Team Seven can clear a path for them. Westerson made a few more notes on his tablet, then rose, bowed, and went to do his master's bidding. Malcolm pulled out a handkerchief and cleaned a few motes of dust off of the radio. Before long, he had progressed to straightening the wires and cables, and then to reorganizing the files in his desk. The stress was getting to him. 
he would have to summon one of his better thralls to help him relax. His eyes drifted to the chessboard on the corner of his desk. The pieces are out of place. It galled him, knowing there was a new player in the game, this white widow, and whether she was Majestrix Kaya or someone else, she was making moves he didn't understand, playing some gambit he didn't recognize. His eyes fell on one of the white bishops, and he picked it up, regarding it thoughtfully. Maybe he couldn't have all the pieces he wanted, but he could at least deny them to his opponent. If he denied her enough, he might spoil her strategy regardless of what it was. Deliberately, he placed the bishop next to his captured pawns. One way or another, he'd make sure everything was put in its place. He was the prince of this city, and he would permit nothing less. At Janus's direction, Kate took a seat behind him in one of the assault shuttles. Sefi was strapped to a gurney, and loaded into the rear compartment with one of the Lothanasi medics. She had fallen unconscious again, which Kate considered a mercy. Eli only knew what Fisher had done to her with that damned cane. Hey, Lieutenant. Fancy meeting you here. Kate looked up as Agent Kelsey Stanton climbed up the loading ramp. Kelsey, hey! When did you get to this party? Just a few minutes ago. The commander had me on cleanup detail. Kelsey shook her hand firmly, then set to strapping herself into the co-pilot's seat beside Janus. I hear you did, Fisher. Nice work. Well, me and a bunch of your fellow Lightbringers, Kate admitted. I get the impression a lot of your guys wanted a piece of him. You're not wrong, Kelsey said, grim amusement coloring her voice. She turned her attention to the pre-flight checklist. Where are we at, boss? Step three. Janus said, absently, adjusting a dial above his seat while watching one of the gauges. Apparently satisfied, he pushed a button on the control panel. The shuttle's drive turbines began to spool up, a slow, heavy whir, as they wove their anti-gravity field beneath the ship. Kate felt a familiar presence and turned to see David silently boarding the shuttle. He carried a bag in one hand and a nocturna's lily in the other. Kate grinned. You're becoming awfully attached to those plants. We've already needed them twice, David said. At this point, I'm not inclined to let one out of my sight. Here, hold these for a moment. He passed both bag and plant to Kate, took a seat in the adjacent chair, and began strapping himself in. Kate put the flower on the floor between her feet and opened the bag. Hello again, lovely, she purred and drew out her Arthana. She sent a bit of mana into it, and the blade glowed with a comfortingly familiar blue-green light. Her head gave a twinge of pain at the exertion, but it was worth it. Satisfied, she slid the blade back into its sheath. Her sidearm was in the bag as well, and she returned it to its holster. The Lightbringers had been kind enough to refill the ammunition in her holdout pistol, but the sidearm was more accurate and did more damage. The way this case was going, that could easily prove important. She passed the bag back to David, then picked up the plant again. So, Janus, why the change in lineup? This ship was carrying a lot more people when we got here, and Kelsey wasn't one of them. Janus did not respond immediately. He murmured something to Kelsey, she answered, 
and the drive turbines increased in pitch. The back hatch sealed shut, and with a final confirmation from Kelsey, Janus lifted the deadly bird into the air. They rose straight up for twenty stories, passed the first skyway level, then engaged the primary mana engines. A dull roar drowned out the whine of the lift turbines as the ship pulled mana from the ether and converted it into hot, glowing gas. The shuttle rocketed forward and upward, shoving Kate back in her seat. The route we'll be taking is classified, Janus said. Most of our agents don't need to know about it. Agent Stanton does. Kate raised her eyebrows at this, but neither Janus nor Kelsey elaborated. She thought she could guess at his reasoning, though. Lothanasi field commanders don't have a long shelf life. Looks like Janus has picked his successor. Lucky you, Kelsey. The first hard burn took them past all four skyway levels and into the open air above the city. The citadel rose ahead of them, and to the east, the sun was just peeking over the barrier range, painting slopes and spire with alpenglow and making the glaciers sparkle on the mountaintops. Morning clouds covered most of the valley, making the rest of the city disappear. A thousand years of mortal progress, Kate thought, and nature covers it up like a mistake on a painter's canvas. Her thoughts were interrupted by a voice she didn't recognize. Detective Katane. Kate, David, and Kelsey all turned in surprise to the source of the voice, the Nocturna's lily in Kate's hands. How? Mr. Travers? Kate asked, dubiously. It didn't sound like either of them, but then it wasn't as if they had vocal cords anymore. Was there any reason to suspect them to sound the same? None of the above, the voice said. I'm not one of Lady Sephira's passengers. Actually, I'm trying to get a hold of her. Do you know where she is? Hold on a minute, Kate said. Who are you? Where are you calling from? The name's Gordon, the voice said. Our mutual acquaintance sends his regards and his regrets for the abrupt departure. That was enough of a cue to trigger Kate's eidetic memory. Artex! You're the one I heard speaking to him from the plant the day we took down Parker. The very same, the voice agreed. David's ears pricked up. Ah, I see. Commander Gordon Levinson of Project Lightpath, I presume. Reports of our death were, well, not so much exaggerated as incomplete, Levinson said. Intentionally so, mind you. But why? Kelsey asked. Her eyes had widened, but given that she was talking to a dead man, she seemed to be taking it in stride. Lightpath was a national tragedy. Why would you let people think you were... gone when you weren't? It's not that simple, Missy, Levinson said, an edge creeping into his voice. This thing was bigger than us and our families. I'd have thought that would be obvious to you by now. What's obvious to me is that people are dying over a secret, Kate snapped. And every time I think I understand it, I find out there's another piece people aren't telling me. Well, it stops here. You want to know what we know? Then start talking. What happened to Lightpath 1? And why is everybody so hellbent on covering up this great chorus? Levinson made a sound that approximated a sigh. All right. 
Our biomancer made contact with the Great Chorus just before the mana surge that destroyed our bodies. Or transfigured them, I suppose. I was never quite sure on the specifics. At any rate, the flash hit, and then the next thing I knew, I was this cloud of thoughts vibrating through a mana field. And so was the rest of my team. The Great Chorus took us in, showed us how to hold ourselves together, how to pull mana from the environment to stay alive. They saw that we'd come in peace, and they welcomed us. In exchange, we kept their secret, kept hidden from the outside world. How did you get involved with Artax? David asked. A few years ago, Kapler Pharmaceutical started taking those flowers out of the rift zone, the ones you call Nocturna's lilies. We already used them to look around the jungle, so we decided this was a good chance to poke our heads up a bit, see how the world had changed in our absence. Artax and I ran into each other by accident when I was looking into his shop at the same time he was studying the flower's arcane properties. Gave us both quite a shock, I can tell you. After that, he agreed to help us keep our privacy, and in exchange, I serve as an extra set of eyes and ears when he needs them. Sorry, but that doesn't track, Kate said. I know Artax. He's one of the best scryers on the planet. He needs eyes and ears like a centipede needs legs. And yet here he is, defying the Minister of Intelligence, closing his shop and tampering with a crime scene, all to keep your secret? I don't buy it. What else is he getting? There was a long pause. Artax wasn't always a shopkeeper, detective. Of a time, he racked up a long list of sins against a long list of people. When he learned about the Great Chorus, he saw a chance to repay some debts he thought would never be cleared. A man'll go a long way to soothe a guilty conscience. Kate sat back, thinking. She had never really given much consideration to Artax's life before Spells for You. She knew he'd had connections to some unsavory and powerful people. One of them, a high master wizard named Tyria Kemmler, was currently serving hard prison time after she stole a dragon's egg for a necromantic ritual. The dragon had not taken kindly to the theft, and the ensuing battle had injured hundreds of bystanders and caused several million marks worth of property damage. If Kemmler was a representative sample of Artax's old social circle, Kate could see how the man might have ended up with a guilty conscience. But a guilty conscience for what, exactly? And how did helping Levinson give him a chance to settle the score? David was apparently following the same line of reasoning as Kate. Levinson, where did the great chorus come from? Well, from the rift, of course, Levinson said. That's where our city is, if city's the right word for something with no buildings. I thought Lady Sephira already told you. That's not what I meant. I've been observing these rift spirits whenever they take control of their hosts, and I'm struck by something. There isn't that much of a change. Kate frowned. What do you mean, partner? I didn't have any trouble telling Imani and Julia apart, or Misty and her rider. Yes, the personalities are different, but the general perspectives are not. These rift spirits don't act like immortal entities from another plane of existence. They act like humans. Humans who are deeply suspicious of the Empire and its citizens. Kelsey's frown mirrored Kate's. 
That doesn't make any sense, she said. Energy-based creatures, with a completely different sensory system, living off mana in a remote part of the world? Most fairies in Daedra have a lot more in common with us than that, and their psychology is light-years apart from ours. How could these rift spirits have evolved to think like we do? David quirked an eyebrow. How indeed. An avalanche of puzzle pieces fell into place. Oh, Eli, Kate whispered. The bale fire. Kelsey frowned. What? David's face was grave. Agent Stanton, you were only partially correct when you said that the rift was a remote part of the world. Such may be the case now, but before 1893, it was the industrial heart of the Republic of Telvar. Which meant that it was a giant war machine, Kate added softly. Thousands of ships, tanks, and aircraft rolling off the lines every year. Powerful spirits being summoned and bound from God's new ware. A million troops guarding the homeland against the Allies. Against us. The implications of that sunk in. We couldn't invade, Kelsey said. Telvar was on the other side of the planet. The Allies' supply lines they never would have held. They might have, David countered. But the build-up to invasion would have taken years, and the Empire was already sick of war. So were my people in Quinardia. Our mutual ally, the Republic of Wales, feared that we might accept a negotiated peace. And so, in secret, they sought alternatives. His lips thinned. The balefire ended any question of negotiations. There was no one left to negotiate with. Wales was behind the balefire? Kelsey asked, incredulous. They barely even have magic on that rock. They subcontracted, Janus growled, brought together high master wizards from all over the world for it. No one knows who, for certain, David said. Their names were expunged from the records for their own safety once the cost of victory became clear. Six million dead, even six million Telvari. That was not something most people could forgive. Gods. Kate shook her head. The Rift Spirits aren't aliens or outsiders. They're ghosts. The ghosts of the Telvari people killed by the Balefire spell. And Artax was involved with the spell somehow. That's what he's trying to atone for by helping them. David nodded slowly. Kelsey looked like she was about to be sick. Ghosts are a folktale, Janus said a bit stiffly. The Nine Hells process human souls off the material plane without any need for outside intervention. Apparently they can make mistakes, Kate said. I mean, come on, six million people dying in the same instant? That's unprecedented in human history. Add in the mana spring that got cracked open at the bottom of the rift, and who knows what could happen. Exactly, Levinson said. The balefire destroyed the bodies of the Telvari but the life mana released by the rift transformed them into something else. Made them powerfully telepathic, for one thing, but it also allowed them to hold themselves together without their physical bodies. We still don't know a lot about how it works, since we don't have the equipment for proper scientific analysis. But we're here, we're alive, and we have each other. 
His voice grew a few degrees colder. And we're not letting anyone take that away from us. Especially not House Kapler. Kapler, Kate echoed. Gods, of course. They took custody of the rift because there were no surviving members of the Telvari royal family. But if the Telvari still exist... And they do, Levinson said. Which means Kapler's claim is a lot of horseshit. His tone became more subdued. Unfortunately, there's nothing we can do about it without revealing our existence. Up to now, the Great Chorus believed our best security lay in secrecy. The rift was too dangerous for Kapler to get very close, so our way of life was secure. But then this son of his comes along, who doesn't have the sense Eli gave a head of lettuce. And he charged into the rift zone, trying to give himself psychic powers, Kate said, shaking her head again and in the process got his friends killed, or mostly killed, and got your people stuck here to boot. Gods, what a mess. Which is why we need to get them home as soon as possible, Levinson said. Agent Starson, are you still willing to parley with us? Janus clenched his jaw, but nodded. We are. Regardless of the crimes Telvar committed in the war, they've more than paid for them and I can hardly imagine how this great chorus could pay reparations in any case. True, Levinson said softly. The Telvari grieve for the pain they brought on the world. When our team entered the great chorus, we brought them a perspective they hadn't seen before, the horrors of war that went unreported on their side. The concentration camps in Fanshuar, the killing grounds in Espaku, not to mention the way our people grieved when they saw the effects of the balefire. The Telvari had been fed a steady diet of patriotism and paranoia for fifty years. They couldn't see the Allies as people anymore, just as the enemy. And you changed that? Kelsey asked, her tone skeptical. All by yourselves? Not all by ourselves, Levinson said, and not all at once, either. But it was a start. Maybe an accord with the Lothanasi is the next step. If you can get our people home safely, that is. We're working on it, Kate said. Lady Sephra is unconscious in the back of this shuttle. We're taking her to soak up some high-powered life mana at the Citadel, and apparently we're meeting Misty and Lady Julia there as well. If we can get them stabilized, then we should be able to get them all out today. Thank Eli. Artax was hoping to do more for them, but as long as Count Halloway is hunting him, the most he can do is act as a diversion. That's more of a help than you might imagine, David said. For all the difficulties we've had over the last few days, Imperial Intelligence agents have not been prominent among them. How's he holding up? Kate asked, seriously. You know Artax. The man's as tough as old boot leather. He'll keep Halloway occupied for as long as he has to. Let's hope it's not for too much longer, then, Kate said. And for what it's worth, tell him thanks from me. I will. Levinson paused. Take good care of Lady Sephra, won't you? She's a good kid, and she has a lot of people I care about riding with her. Kate nodded once. I'll do my best, sir. Janus glanced over his shoulder at them. Coming up on the Citadel. Brace for descent.
And that's the end of Chapter 21. Our heroes are nearing Caius Citadel and the mana nexus that will save Sephi's life. But Malcolm's not about to let them get away without a fight. It's a Syndicate versus Lightbringers throwdown next week. Patricia Hampel said, Maybe being oneself is an acquired taste. For a writer, it's a big deal to bow to the fact that you are going to write your own books and not somebody else's. Not even the books of the somebody else you thought it was your express business to spruce yourself up to be. So, let's take a look at my latest efforts. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 6,643 words this week, over the course of 8.25 hours, for an average writing speed of 805 words per hour. As of Friday night, when I'm writing this script, I've gone 109 days without breaking my chain. This week I took a break from The Lost and the Least to work on my new story. I'm writing this one in a style very similar to The Three Graces, a first-person narrative with short chapters of one scene each. I've now completed eight chapters, and I feel like I've built up a good deal of momentum. This is a classic fantasy tale, completely unrelated to Metamore Keep or Metamore City. It's also one of the darker things I've written. The story is called The Blood God's Gift, and I'm expecting it to be a short novel. I'll share more about this story in the Patreon podcast, which you can subscribe to by making a monthly pledge at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. And on that note, let me welcome this month's new patrons, Jay, Leon, and Paige. If you are a patron and you haven't checked out the site in a while, you really should. We have an RSS feed now, which means you can subscribe to my Patreon feed in iTunes or any other podcatcher. Just sign into Patreon and go to my creator page, you'll see a link to your personalized RSS feed on the right-hand side of the screen. I've been adding some fun stuff over there lately, so come check it out. I'd like to take a moment here to share a promo from my good friend J. Daniel Sawyer. On Earth, we surf, we skydive, we fly like squirrels, we walk high wires, we jump out of spaceships. But look out, galaxy, because here we come, fast and furious, tearing into the sky for the most extreme human adventure in the universe. Moon marathons, supernova surfing, gas giant storm riding, alien mountains and gravity games, and so much more. Extreme tech, extreme danger, extreme environments. Ten books at the extremes of human imagination and endurance for one low price. Top voices in science fiction and a few fresh faces bring you a bundle packed to the gills with brand new adventures. Extreme Science Fiction. Kicking ass now, only at storybundle.com. Offer ends October 6th. And now, the feedback. Hi, Chris. My name's Chris Also. Found your podcast a few weeks ago, and it got caught up from the beginning. Uh, I have a question. It seems like something got skipped in one of the recent episodes. 
Morgan gets dropped off the top of Kepler Tower, and then all of a sudden we're at the Citadel going to get Ice Mana. Did I miss an episode, or did we just jump really quickly? Just wanted to find out. Thank you very much. Hi, Chris. Yes, you did indeed miss an episode. You're going to want to go back to episode 65, which has the first half of chapter 19. That's where Morgan deals with her tricky landing, and then rejoins Misty and Julia. Thanks for calling in. Hey Chris, I've been enjoying things unseen so far. I haven't commented in a while, but lots of little things and big things were standing out to me. Two episodes back, I really thought it was so cool how Malcolm was so shaken up. Seeing him like that when we don't really get to typically was just pretty awesome. And seeing Sefi just kind of prophesize with that cool kind of, you know, oh, well, you won't live to see this. Sorry. Um, (laughs) That was just so freaking badass. And the visions were really, really interesting. I know we kind of got a glimpse of that before, but it's definitely intriguing. And I think it's cool how Malcolm lost his cool. I also noted the nod to his obsessive compulsive tendencies and, you know, I was remembering Morgan's and I was wondering, is that a vampire thing or just, you know, these two particular individuals thing? Like, would they have been like that before they were vampires or is there like a tendency for vampires to get obsessive compulsive when they're freaked out or unsettled. I mean, I know it's a, it's one of many types of coping mechanisms, so it wouldn't be surprising that several people would develop that unless they had it already kind of innately, but it would make sense that for them to develop it as a coping mechanism. But I don't know. It's just interesting to see Malcolm shaken up like that. Hi, Sarah. Yes, in the world of Metamore City, all vampires who aren't feral have OCD. It's one of their handicaps, like being unable to enter a residence uninvited. This is based on Chinese vampire mythology, where you can protect yourself from being attacked by scattering a bowl of rice on the floor. The vampire is so obsessive that it will stop and pick up every grain of rice before continuing its pursuit. The X-Files also use this trope in their fifth season episode, Bad Blood. The OCD behavior only applies to things that the vampire considers to be out of place. A vampire doesn't have to go around straightening up every rock and twig in the forest, for example. Pulling weeds in the garden, however, is another matter entirely. Nobody knows exactly why vampires are OCD, but it could be a response of their human minds trying desperately to maintain a sense of order and control in a very tenuous existence. This theory is supported by the fact that feral vampires lose their OCD. It's the human side of the vampire that cares about things being in their place. The beast couldn't care less. The last half of Sarah's voicemail was cut off, so she wrote an email with the rest of her comments. She writes, I appreciate the humility Morgan displayed when making her petition to Kaya her recognition of how she thought Kaya would perceive her, and the fact that she needn't have worried, were neat. Also, the automaton was very cool, and almost sad in a way, probably because it's the last of its kind, and also reminds me of Full Metal Alchemist, which is a favorite of mine. 
I have since listened to the most recent episode, and wow, yeah, that was gory. Very well done, though. Super badass takedown of Fisher. I was mentally cheering. And the part before that made me feel for Seffy so much. Looking forward to listening to the Patreon behind-the-scenes tidbits. Keep it on the bright side. Unquote. Thanks, Sarah. Omega the Automaton was a creation of two of my fellow Metamore Keep authors, Chris O'Kane and Wolf0013. Omega was a thousand years old even at the time of Metamore Keep, which makes him about 2300 years old now. He has an important role to play in the later books of The Last Prophecy. If you want to learn more about him, you can go to metamorekeep.com and search for the story first and last. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is at facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Twitter handle is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. If you like what I'm doing on this show and want to help more people find it, leave us a review on iTunes. It really does make a big difference. That's all for this week. Come back next time for more fiction fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this show are copyright 2013 and 2016 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.